0: Thanks for downloading the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference 2012 podcast. This podcast series features recordings of papers from the conference, which took place in University College Dublin on the 31st of August and 1st of September 2012. The conference was generously supported by UCD School of History and Archives, UCD Research and the Society for Renaissance Studies. For more information, go to tudorstuartireland.com. In this episode, a paper by Jess Valona of Columbia Law School. His paper was entitled, Sir Audley Mervyn's Speech Demanding Reforms in the Court of Claims, a Reinterpretation Through the Lens of Legal History. Thank you very much. Uh, At the beginning, now, one thing. Lawyers are cautious, even though it should be obvious this paper has nothing to do with my day job, and it's about my academic work. Uh, Why don't I do the standard disclaimer? What I say today are my own views and not those of the U.S. Securities and Exchange (laughs) (laughs) Commission. This research project was born in a moment of surprise. I'm a lawyer and adjunct law professor who's enrolled in a graduate program in world history and in one of my history courses I was studying Stuart Ireland, came to the restoration, the act of settlement and to the speech by Sir Audley Mervyn, Speaker of the House of Commons, demanding changes in the procedures in the newly created Court of Claims. The historical accounts of this speech emphasize quite properly, I think, it's essentially political nature and significance. And it's well known the Protestant-dominated commons had become alarmed at how often the Court of Claims was finding Catholic claimants innocent of participation in the late rebellion. Under the act of settlement, as we heard, innocent Catholics could recover their forfeited estates from the Protestant adventurers and soldiers who've been granted them in the Cromwellian settlement. Consistent with this political focus, historians typically have quoted inflammatory words from... Mervyn's speech about Hannibal at the gates and the like portrayed his proposal as a mere list of demands and mentioned a few that on their face, if adopted, would uh, would appear to have made it much more difficult for Catholic claimants to be found innocent. Crucially, they recount that the King and the Lord Lieutenant uh, James Duke of Ormond saw the speech as a provocative threat to the stability of the Restoration in Ireland and when a foiled plot by some Protestants weakened the common's political position, Ormond rebuffed Mervyn without addressing the substance of his proposals. Mervyn and the, the Commons uh, backed down. So imagine my surprise as a litigator who teaches procedure when I saw the published text of Mervin's speech. It was a 38-page document making 20 different proposals concerning procedure, evidence, and other rules. The political rhetoric is there to be sure but Mervyn also used detailed legal reasoning including more than 100 citations to court decisions, statutes, treatises and Latin legal maxims. My first thought was am I in the right place in the history <laughs> library? I feel like I'm back at the law school. But my second thought was to wonder whether all that legalese was mere window dressing Or, if Mervyn's proposals actually had some legal substance, could he justify changing the court's rules even to someone who didn't share his politics? And if so, maybe should we reconsider whether the Duke of Ormond's blanket rebuff of Mervyn, however adroit, was his only possible response? Okay, so my research thus offers a partial critique to the exclusively political interpretation of this episode. I'll address today the legal content of four proposals in Mervyn's speech. Uh, But let me first discuss two threshold issues, why, in my view, the substance of the speech has not received detailed attention, and what challenges this project presents. There are many reasons for contemporaries uh, to have mostly ignored the substance of uh, Mervyn's proposals. In addition to what I've already mentioned about stability, Orman and his allies questioned the Commons authorities to initiate such suggestions at all. They recoiled, yes, from Mervyn's rhetoric, his marching to Dublin Castle with the Commons in tow to deliver the speech to Ormond in person, his publishing the speech in Dublin and London at a time when that was not routine, and the Commons' simultaneous rejection of the King's Bill to make certain amendments to the Act of Settlement. Mervyn did not have the highest reputation, and the extent of his legal training is unclear. Okay, but there are countervailing reasons to suspect the Commons' critique may have been more than pure politics. Two were known, one maybe less so. Thus, the Court of Claims was arguably not entitled to a presumption that its procedures were fair and regular. It lacked a long history, and while its commissioners were, as we heard, free of interest in the landed issue, unlike the first iteration of the court, Protestants correctly suspected it was being uh, subject to political pressure uh, behind the scenes. The court only adopted a short set of rules, and it addressed what would happen at its hearings in a single paragraph. It announced that its hearings would proceed one county after another, saying this would avoid surprise and inconvenience. But then, with no explanation, the court dropped that schedule and said it would just set up upcoming hearings at random. Second, the Protestant adventurers and soldiers who held forfeited Catholic estates were, despite obvious huge political advantages, at an unusual legal disadvantage before the court of claims. Almost by definition, the parties to a lawsuit know a lot about the facts to a dispute. They were there. Most of these Protestant defendants had not been present for their rebellion. Some maybe, but many not. They, had, they didn't have, those who were not there, personal knowledge to use in bringing the case. They worked hard to overcome this disadvantage, but it was a problem nonetheless, and the Commons proposals uh, tried to address this. Finally, contrary to his dismissive public posture, it seems that Ormond at first privately gave serious consideration to the legal merits of the Commons proposals. It, this seems not to be generally understood, although I'll correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, it's not too surprising he would have done so, since the Act authorized him and his counsel to give directions to the commissioners. Thomas Cart's papers contain an undated and anonymous memorandum from a lawyer to Orman. It recited that His Grace asked him to review and advise him on the law concerning Mervyn's proposals, and the lawyer then addressed those proposals point by point. In nine cases, he recited that the proposal was already under the consideration of the Duke and his council, sometimes adding the proposal was not unreasonable. He then went on to address, mostly critically, Mervyn's legal arguments on the other 11. Let me list a few of those nine proposals under consideration, which you may think sound reasonable. One, the court should return to the original county by county schedule. Two, defendants defendant should get 30 to 40 days notice of the hearing. Three, if a material witness offered by one side doesn't show up. The court should suspend the hearing and use its process to summon the witness. Four, where there are multiple Catholic claims to the same property and that happened, the court should first establish who has good title and only after that address the title holder's guilt or innocence. And five, each commissioner should state in open court his reasons for supporting the judgment. Orman's apparent private consideration of Mervyn's legal arguments gives them, I think, a bit more credibility. Uh, along with the other factors I mentioned, it suggests that the Commons proposal should not be dismissed without considering Mervin's legal arguments. So I now test them against the English legal principles of his time, which is what both of these uh, lawyers uh, used. This presents three challenges. First, there's a lot of ground to cover, and we won't cover it today. The 20 proposals cover diverse rules. Mervyn did not organize his argument, and they involve these issues, distinct legal doctrines second rules of procedure and evidence were not nearly as well developed let alone codified as they are today the first true evidence treatise was not even published until the 18th century third the rules are very different than they are today to see the choices available to mervyn and the duke's legal advisor we sometimes have to strip away modern assumptions keeping in mind those challenges i've decided for today to discuss four of mervyn's proposals and Commons' proposals jury trial, the rights of individual Catholics named in the act of settlement, the nominees, burden of proof, and whether the so-called 49 officers could testify. They illustrate a lot of different issues uh, legally and historically. Uh, The Duke's advisor criticized all four, setting up somewhat of a debate for us, contemporary debate. Um, I'm not going to focus on individual court decisions. Uh, I don't think they're key, frankly. It's, It's the arguments that people were making. Um, and I'll propose additional arguments because i i the theory that if they'd ever gotten to a real public debate, people would have been doing more thinking and coming up with more arguments. My view? I believe Mervyn's plea for jury trials is quite weak, but the other three proposals have at least some plausible legal basis. All right, jury trial. The act of settlement charged commissioners with deciding claims. Mervyn proposed instead, at least in part, the use of juries. And while the act didn't preclude this, The real issue is whether Mervyn's view of juries and review of jury verdicts matched up with historical evolution of the jury itself. It did not. Mervyn's proposal is anachronistic. His idea is plausible in one sense. By this time, the jury certainly was a hallowed legal uh, common law institution. The concern uh, historians have noted is that Irish juries would have functioned at this time in a partisan manner, since they were likely to be dominated by Protestants. The Duke's legal advisor added that jurors would often have disqualifying interests in the land at issue because three-quarters of the land was at issue. Mervyn acknowledges juries will protect the king's interest, by which he meant the Protestant interest. He doesn't shy away from that. The reason, however, is he says they are free to decide cases by looking outside the trial record to what they know from living in the community. This was anachronistic, okay? It's true that at the inception of the jury system, jurors acted on their own personal local knowledge, uh, drawn from informal inquiries they did, make make going through the community before trial. But over centuries, this active jury gradually had evolved into the passive jury we know today, which only reviews evidence that it gets from the parties. Now, in Mervin's defense, the law didn't prohibit the active jury model. Still, to resume the old practice, just clashed with the common law that had developed all these rules of evidence to, to, to guide what, what evidence goes to a jury. As reassurance, R- Mervin says his juries would be restrained in two ways. I think both are flawed. First, he says juries would, would only decide issues of fact. The commissioners will decide issues of law. Well, that's a good distinction, and it exists today, existed then, but it's not too meaningful in this context. Yes, there are legal issues, title issues, but the principal issue was a pure question of fact, deciding Catholics' guilt or innocence of rebellion. Mervyn's juries would dominate the process. Second, Mervyn said jury errors would be corrected by writ of a taint. In fact, however, a taint, which dated from 13th century, had fallen into disuse and by this writ you had a 24 person second jury to retry a case and if it reached a result that's different it was presumed the first jury had been corrupted and you take their property away and you throw them in jail. This maybe made sense when active jurors were doing all this investigation themselves but it, it was rarely imposed any penalties under taint, and at, at the point of, an, of a passive jury it simply made no sense. But here's the interesting point, even if Mervyn had wanted to uh, propose a more contemporary system than a taint for correcting jury error, it would have been hard. There wasn't much review of verdicts at that time. Uh, Star Chamber reviewed verdicts and reviewed juries, Castle Chamber, but they were gone. Sometimes common law uh, judges find jurors for verdicts contrary to the evidence, but very rare. And after this time, Courts embraced a vital new tool, which was uh, a motion for new trial, but it wasn't well established in 1663. So I think not only was the jury proposal biased, but it was out of step with the evolution of the jury. Okay, next is Mervyn's proposal to interpret narrowly the rights granted under the Act of Settlement to Catholics it mentioned by name, the nominees. it's more a question here of determining simply whether under the rules that, were, that he used, which were valid rules, his narrow interpretation of the act is uh, plausible. I think it is. Um, and the fact, that he was somewhat involved in drafting the act uh, in the lobbying on the act uh, somewhat adds a little bit of credibility to him. Now, several dozen prominent Catholics had successfully lobbied to be mentioned by name in a special provision of the act, granting them the right to be restored to their <laughs> land without having to further prove their innocence. One condition that was related to that was that they did have, to, Protestants on their land had to be first surprised with equivalent land elsewhere. However, after the act took effect, as we just heard, it became evident that there wasn't as much land uh, to go around as uh, people had thought, and that was going to be a big problem. Accordingly, at least this is how Mervyn explains the theory, some nominees responded to that by filing claims for innocence under the general provision used by everyone else because under that provision, you could be restored without having having first to make reprisals. Now, these men owned a lot of land. We're talking about six who were ultimately got decrees of innocence. There was 50,000 acres at stake. Mervin proposed that nominees be barred from making that switch to the innocence process. The remedy they should be stuck with is the one they lobbied for. The Duke's legal advisor argued they should be able to choose either remedy. He said nothing in the act says they can't switch, okay? On the other hand, nothing in the act said they endorsed that they could switch, but Mervyn also claimed that there were all these other things in the act that, that pointed toward the fact that they had to stick with their act. I'm going to skip that section, but to address the act's ambiguity, Mervyn and the Duke's legal advisor invoked dueling rules of statutory interpretation, canons of construction. A well-chosen canon can sometimes win a case. The surprise decision I will just mention by the US Supreme Court to uphold Obama's health care reform seems to have been turned precisely on one such canon. But skeptical scholars have long assembled these canons in pairs, long tables of them in pairs. So on any topic, you can find one canon supporting one interpretation. And another canon supporting exactly the opposite interpretation, okay? The canon cited by Mervyn and the Duke's legal advisor, guess what? They're one of those pairs. Mervin invoked the canon that a statute that is in derogation of cuts into the common law should be narrowly construed. And he said, look, you know, the, the common law certainly does not uh, generously treat traitors and restore them to their property, so we should treat that provision uh, narrowly. One problem, though, is that the act did not identify the nominees as guilty, as traitors, just that they're being restored without being put to further proof. Now, the Duke's legal advisor quoted the, uh, said that the act of settlement was an act of grace that granted certain remedies. He thus invoked the, can- the canon that the terms of remedial statute are to be construed liberally. In particular, if you get grant one remedy, that doesn't mean you're excluding another remedy. All of which is true under the rules, OK? Problem is, well, you tell me. Is the act of settlement simply an act of grace, an act that grants remedies? Isn't it also a very complex act, which had other purposes, including protecting Protestant settlers? That's why Mervyn calls the act the law of laws, the Magna Carta Hiberniae. So Mervyn's canon of construction, I guess, is plausible, as plausible as the one cited by the Duke's legal advisor. But I don't think either clearly governs. Then they make, Mervyn makes the point of using the doctrine of election of remedies. Now, if we get through this, we're doing good. It generally (laughs) means that if you have a choice of two inconsistent legal paths, once you elect to pursue one, like by filing a lawsuit, you're barred from pursuing the other. The justifications for the bar can vary, but one of them is because Somebody else relied on your choice, and so you're not allowed to shift. Okay, the rule doesn't fit here, technically, because that's nothing to do with statutes, and we're trying to figure out about a statute. Okay, Duke's legal advisor says that. Still, Mervin's creative application of the rule, I think, is appealing. He says, look, the nominees made an election before the act was passed by lobbying for their special provision. The lobbying didn't freeze their options, but once the act was adopted, their choice was frozen, bound forever. Now, why? Well, I think implicit in Mervyn's speech is that the Protestants relied, or certain Protestants relied to their detriment on the nominee's initial choice. The Protestants holding the nominee's land may have supported the act, tell me, and agreed in principle to give up their current holdings only on the assurance they'd be first in line for reprisals. It would be unfair uh, to to put them in an opposite position. So if we cut through all the legal lingo, I think we have competing views of the purpose of the Act of Settlement. Um, And that's not surprising given its complexity of uh, of its origins. I think Mervyn's view had some legal merit, but even if you disagree, let me ask you this. We do, do, let's say we let a nominee try to prove his innocence. What if he's found guilty, as some were? Can he switch back and gain his estate anyway? The Duke's legal advisor said, yes, this act is all about grace. But was it fairly intended that a Protestant could defend his land claim, win a decree that the nominee was guilty of rebellion, and then lose his land anyway? In a separate proposal, Mervyn sought to prevent this, and I think that's an even stronger case. The next one is burden of proof. Mervyn complained that the court of claims, which had no formal rule on this topic, had deviated from the act of settlement by placing the burden of proof upon Protestants. He proposed that it be expressly shifted back to the Catholic claimant. I think it's plausible in part. There is language talking about uh, Catholics having to prove themselves to be faithful and loyal in the act. But the focus of both of these gentlemen in their discussions are general principles of burden of proof. Mervin cites the maxim that a burden of proof lies on a plaintiff in a civil case, and he portrays the Catholic claimant as such a plaintiff. True enough, though sometimes burden of proof can be different on different issues in a case. That only gets you so far. But the Duke's legal advisor says, look, this is really a criminal case. It's really quasi-criminal, right? Guilty or not guilty of rebellion. So guess what? The relevant principle is the age-old presumption of innocence. And Mervin says, yes, I acknowledge that rule. But he rejects it here on questionable grounds. He says, look, this was an almost national, well-organized confederacy. It created a violent presumption, that's a legal term, from that period, that all Catholics were rebels, which you have to then rebut. We talked something that was mentioned earlier. In other words, for Mervyn, the presumption of innocence was not a guarantee. It exists only so long as you happen to have a lot of innocent people around you. OK, that's problematic. Mervyn had too much better arguments, I think, which might have made he might have made if there had been more debate. Um, there were other precedents for switching the burden of proof that the Navigation Act of 1660, the English Act, expressly shifted to the ship owner the burden of refuting a, a smuggling charge or risk forfeiting a ship. I don't know, there may be a, reasons not for them want to cite this law, but it was there. Second, Mervyn could easily have shifted the burden in part. The concept of burden of proof really has only has two parts. One is who's, who's got to carry the burden at the end of trial, burden of persuasion. The other is burden of going forward. Who has to put evidence in first? Usually enough to make out a, a basic case and then shift to the other side burden to put in some evidence. Mervyn's proposal, while ambiguous, can be read as merely requiring the Catholic to put in evidence first. That would make sense, since the Protestant opposing him had no personal knowledge, as we said, of where he was during the rebellion. In the interest of time, I'm going to leap, leap over the, the 49 officers, and I'm happy to answer questions about it, because otherwise I'll run over. Um, thus. A number of Mervin's proposals were legally plausible, despite that, as we know, Orman never responded on merits to any of them and instead rebuffed Mervin and his colleagues into withdrawing them entirely. This helped defuse the political instability and allowed the Court of Claims to proceed, as we know, eventually awarding uh, several hundred decrees of innocence. But then the court expired six months later with thousands of claims unheard. Could Orman instead have seen Mervin's speech as less a threat? than an opportunity? I mean, could he have offered to discuss certain rules changes for the court of claims on the condition that the House of Commons supported, for example, an extension of time for the court to hear claims? If he had, would Mervyn have even listened to this sort of talk by, by Orman? Look, it's totally beyond the scope of my research to address that question. However, all I'm saying is the presence of legal merit possible legal merit in some of Mervyn's proposals means that raw material was sort of on the table to at least think about whether to start such a negotiation. Thank you.